in life, we all have known moments or seasons of anticipation. Whether it is as a kid, anticipating Christmas or a birthday. Or the anticipation of a vacation that we've planned from long ago. It could be anticipating a wedding day or the birth of a child. Or even anticipating a loved one returning home from service overseas. You see, as we start the Gospel of Mark, what we're going to see this morning is the arrival of the one the people of God have been anticipating. And this anticipation didn't last a few days or months or years, but centuries. You see, God promised to send a deliverer. And when God promises anything, whatever God promises, we can be sure that he will fulfill it. And so turn with me to Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 13, as we see this anticipation realized for the promised one has come. And so a little bit of context on the Gospel of Mark. It is written by John Mark. He is not one of the 12 disciples, but he is a companion of the Apostle Peter. He also journeyed on a missionary trip with Barnabas and the Apostle Paul. You see, the Gospel of Mark, it is the first gospel written of the four gospels. And it is the shortest one of the four gospels. You see, in Mark's gospel, he focuses more on Jesus' works than his words. And so we see more miracles than we see his teaching or his sermons or his parables. And as we journey through the Gospel of Mark, what we're going to see is that Jesus was always serving. And he would serve ultimately by dying for our sins. As Mark chapter 10 verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. An outline of this book, it can be divided into two parts. See, chapters 1 to 8 focuses more on Jesus' identity, that he is the Messiah, that he is God in the flesh and has this, he has authority. In chapters 9 to 16, it focuses more on Jesus' purpose, where it gets more and more specific on what the Messiah came to do. So Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. Won't we please stand for the reading of God's word? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. 
Immediately, the spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. You may be seated. And so our big idea this morning would be this, that Jesus is the true son and promised savior whom the Old Testament anticipated. I'll say it again. Our big idea is that Jesus is the true son and promised savior whom the Old Testament anticipated. And so Jesus is the true son and promised savior whom the Old Testament anticipated. And our passage can be structured into three scenes. First, we're going to see the preparation for the son. And then we'll see the inauguration of the son's ministry. And then the temptation of the son. And so the preparation for the son, the inauguration of the son's ministry, and the temptation of the son. First point, first scene, the preparation for the son. Look at verse 1. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You see, we cannot gloss over this verse because there is so much weight in these words. You see, Mark, he gets straight to the point as he says, the beginning of the gospel. Friends, what is the gospel? It is the good news. It is an announcement of the coming salvation that the Lord will bring about, that he will bring about deliverance. And this good news is about a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he is the content of the gospel. See, the gospel is centered on his life, death, and resurrection. You see, he will bring about a new exodus. You know, not like the exodus back in uh, the book of Exodus where God delivered the people of Israel from slavery to an oppressive leader who is Pharaoh, But what Jesus is going to do, he's going to bring about a new exodus. You see, we're enslaved to sin and deserving of God's just judgment. And we're in need of rescue. We're in need of forgiveness and salvation. And Jesus came to do that. You see, this good news, it is a message of salvation for sinners. It is so because the plight of all humanity is that we are ruined that we are sinful and we stand condemned before a holy and righteous God. And we are in need of saving. Mark says that this gospel is, he confesses that Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You see, Mark confesses the identity of Jesus. He is the Christ, the Son of God. And there are many ideas in our day concerning who is Jesus. You see, other religions have different beliefs about him. And none are correct. You see, friends, the most important question that we're going to have to answer is who is Jesus Christ? What do you believe him to be? Is he a prophet? Is he only a good person or a good teacher? Is he a God being one among many? Or is he the greatest created being? Merely a man. Or is he the Christ, the Son of God? You see, the state of one's soul hangs upon how do you answer the question, who is Jesus Christ? And friends, how would you answer? Who is Jesus? Well, Mark gets us the answer. He says that Jesus 
is the Christ. You see, Christ is not his last name like Chapman is my last name. You see, Christ is his title, which signifies that it's getting at that he's the Messiah, that he is the anointed one. He's the messianic king who comes from the line of David who will rule all nations. But not only is he the Christ, he is the Son of God, the second person of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. See, each person is fully God, and yet there is only one God. And what Mark is saying is that this is God in the flesh. You see, he has the very same authority as God the Father. And he became man after being conceived from the Holy Spirit and was born of the Virgin Mary. You see, he is without sin. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he does not have a sin nature. You see, Jesus Christ, he is one person with two natures. He is truly God and truly man. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says, as it is written in the Isaiah, the prophet, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And so what he's getting at right here is that the gospel, it does not just come out of nowhere. It is not something that's out of the blue or all of a sudden, but it is directly connected to the Old Testament scriptures. You see, it, is, it was promised by God that he will send a deliverer. And Jesus, he fulfills that promise. You see, God planned our redemption long before, before the foundation of the world. And when sin entered into the world, God had already made known that he will send a deliverer. You see, the first reference of the gospel is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God makes known that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. But then also, as Revelation progresses throughout the Old Testament, God gets more and more specific about who this coming one is, that he would be an offspring of Abraham, that he would come from the tribe of Judah, that he would be, that he would be the son of David, he'd be born in Bethlehem and that he will be God in the flesh. In Isaiah, he spoke, most about, he spoke much about uh, this coming one and the good news, so much so that Mark begins to quote three specific Old Testament scriptures to make known that this is a fulfillment of prophecy. This is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. He quotes Exodus chapter 23, verse 20, in the first part where it says, See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. You see, in Exodus 23, 20, God promised to send an angel who will go before Israel and protect them all the way till they get to the promised land. But then the other part, it says, he will prepare your way. That is a reference to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, where God made known that he will send a forerunner before the coming of the Lord. And then verse 3, this is almost word for word a quote of Isaiah chapter 40 that our sister Mary read. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. You see, God is promising to send someone who will go before, who will prepare the people. He is a forerunner. And God makes known, he uses phrases like prepare the way, uh, prepare your way, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight his path. God uses these phrases to make known what he will do. He will get the people ready for the coming of the Lord. And God uses phrases like my messenger 
and a voice to convey how he will get the people ready. He will get the people ready through preaching. And as he preaches, those who hear and heed his message, they will be prepared. They will be made ready for the coming of the Lord. But those who ignore or reject his message, they will not be ready. And they'll be condemned. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. You see, Mark makes known that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the forerunner, that he is the one who will prepare the way for the Lord. And his message is a message of repentance. Like the Old Testament prophets, he is calling the people of Israel to repent of their sins and avoid the condemnation that they rightfully deserve. You see that word repentance? What it means is it is a change of mind, a change of heart. It is turning with contrition from living for yourself and for sin to total devotion to the Lord. And as this happens, as one repents, God forgives sin meaning that he does not count our transgressions against us, but that we have been pardoned. And this message of repentance, it is for all people, people of all ages and people of all ethnicities, people of all backgrounds, whether you're from the inner city, the suburbs, or the rural area, regardless of where you're from or what the color of your skin is, we all need to repent because we are all guilty of sin. We've rebelled against a holy and just God. And this message of repentance is also implying that judgment is coming. But it also conveys that God is merciful. That God desires to forgive sinners. And we can only be forgiven of our sins by turning away from them and trusting in his son. You see, we cannot buy our forgiveness. We can't negotiate with God how we can be forgiven. And we can't do enough good deeds. We can't do enough works in order to be forgiven of sins. The only way we can be forgiven is by repenting. And the Lord makes it known in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 7. He says, let the wicked abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will freely forgive. The Lord offers mercy and forgiveness for all who turn and trust in him. Verses 4 and 5 also teaches us that repentance is accompanied with confession. You see, when we repent of our sins, we are humbly acknowledging them and we are confessing to the Lord. You see, repentance and confession is also not a one-time thing but it's an ongoing thing in the life of Christian, in the life of the Christian. You see, though we who are in Christ, we are saved, we still continue to sin. And our response to our sin is not concealing it, it's not covering it up, but that we are confess it and forsake it. You see, repentance and confession of sin should be a normal practice in the life of all Christians. It should be normal, just like how it is normal for us to eat food whenever we're hungry. 
You see, when we're hungry, we usually don't suppress our hunger. No, we go and get a snack or we go and get a meal and try to satisfy that hunger. And most times, most people, they probably eat multiple times throughout the day. Well, in the same way, you know, as we are convicted of sin, we are to confess that sin and forsake it. Every time we are convicted, every time we sin and every time we're convicted, that's how often we should confess it. And it should be a normal practice, a normal pattern in the life of all Christians. And we don't only confess, quote unquote, big sins, but we confess all sins. We confess when we grumble. We confess when we're discontent, just like we confess when we've committed sexual immorality and when we're greedy. Look at verse 4 and 5 again. John, as John preached, many, of, many people from Jerusalem and Judea came out. They heard the message. They repented. They confessed, and they were baptized. And this is exactly what John is getting at as he says that he proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see, what he's not saying is that baptism is a prerequisite for forgiveness. But rather, one repents of their sins, they are forgiven, and they show that. They show that they've repented through their baptism. And it's the same for us who are in Christ. You know, we are baptized by immersion, immersed in the water, not before we repent, but afterwards. It shows that we have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And baptism, it happens upon a credible profession of faith. And friends, Scripture does not know a category of a Christian who has not been baptized. And so if you are in Christ and you have not been baptized, baptized as a believer, I would exhort you to obey the Lord Jesus and be baptized. In the context of a faithful gospel preaching church, happy to talk more afterwards if you would like. Look at verse 6. It says, John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Now, let's just be honest. That verse seems kind of strange. You know, some people may be wondering, like, man, it, that's too much information. Like, why do I need to know uh, his wardrobe and his diet? Well, Mark puts it there. With very, uh, he was very intentional in writing this verse. You see, what he's getting at is that John the Baptist, he comes in the spirit of Elijah. You see, Elijah was an Old Testament prophet who proclaimed repentance to the, to the northern kingdom, the people of Israel. And what he's describing here is that Elijah was a man of the wilderness and he wore, uh, he was a hairy man. And he wore a leather belt around his waist. Second Kings chapter 1 verse 8 says this. It says this about Elijah. It says he was a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. And you probably wonder, well, why is this important? Well, this is very important because in, Ma in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, God makes known that Elijah would come before the day of the Lord. And so what Mark is saying is that John the Baptist fulfills that prophecy, that he comes in the spirit of Elijah. It is not as much making much about John the Baptist as it is as he is being a forerunner as he's coming before the coming of the Lord Jesus, which means the Lord is on the way. The Lord is about to come. And then look at verses 7 and 8 when he says that, and this is how John prepared the way. He proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. 
I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with repentance. You see, John prepared the way by preaching to the people about the one who is to come. He exhorts them to repent. He, he not just exhorts them to repent, but he says that there is one who is more powerful than he is. And this coming one, he is far more powerful because he is the Lord. And John says that he is unworthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. You see, friends, this was a work that, that only Gentile slaves would do for their masters. You see, if you were a Jewish servant, you could uh, you can refuse to untie the strap of your sandals, but a Gentile slave couldn't. And what John, what John is saying is that he is unworthy even to do that for the Lord. He's saying that the Lord is, is so great that I can't even, I'm not even worthy. I don't deserve to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. And friends, this is not a false humility. John doesn't have low self-esteem. What's going on is that John the Baptist has a right view of the Lord. And as he has a right view of the Lord, what it does is it propels him to have a right view of himself, that he knows that he is sinful and undeserving of this ministry. He knows that he is only deserving of judgment. You see, when we know the Lord, we're no, we cannot be impressed with ourselves. You see, when we view the Lord rightly as he has revealed himself, we will not puff out our chests and feel good about ourselves. But we too will see that, that we are only deserving of judgment, that we are unworthy. But then John also conveys how the Lord Jesus is greater. He makes it known through the baptism. He says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so like John, Jesus, he will baptize, but his baptism, the baptism that he baptized will be significantly infinitely greater than the baptism that John baptizes. You see, John baptizes with water, and it's symbolic of moral transformation, pointing to the one who was to come. But Jesus, he, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit, who is the third person of the Trinity, which implies, John is getting at, that Jesus is God himself, because only God can give the Holy Spirit. And this language of baptizing with the Holy Spirit, it, it implies new covenant language. You see, in the new covenant, God promised that he will give the Holy Spirit to his people. And Jesus inaugurates the new covenant after his death. And he baptized his disciples after his resurrection and ascension. You see, in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, before he ascended, he tells his disciples to remain here and they will soon be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But then in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, you will see that the Spirit descended upon the apostles and his disciples were then baptized with the Spirit. And it's the same for us who believe in the Lord Jesus. We are baptized with the Spirit at conversion, where we are sealed with the Holy Spirit and he will be, with it. He will be in us for all our days. And so in this section, we see John being faithful to his calling. John the Baptist is preparing the way for the coming of the Lord. You see, he, he wasn't the point, but John was a pointer. He was not pointing people to himself, but he was pointing people to the Lord Jesus. 
And just as John was faithful in pointing people to the Lord Jesus, friends, we too who are in Christ, we are to be faithful in pointing people to Christ. See, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. You see, John was faithful to preaching a message of repentance in the wilderness. Friends, we must be faithful to preaching the gospel wherever the Lord would have us, whether it's in our homes, in our neighborhoods, among our friends, in our workplaces. You see, John, he was faithful in preparing people for the Lord. And friends, we are to be faithful in preparing people for the return of the Lord because the Lord Jesus promised that he will come again. And when he comes, he will save his bride and he will judge his enemies. So NBC, may we be faithful. May we emulate the faithfulness of John the Baptist. And may we be faithful in proclaiming Christ crucified to all people. And if you know yourself to not be a Christian, I am so glad that you are here. I think there's no greater place for you to be than a place where you are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I would exhort you, I implore you to turn from your sin and believe in Jesus for salvation. You see, God is holy and righteous, and we have sinned against him. And he sent his son to save sinners like me and you by his son, the Lord Jesus, dying on the cross for sins and three days resurrecting from the grave. If you turn from your sin today and trust in Jesus, you'll be forgiven, you'll be reconciled to God, and you'll be adopted into his family. Happy to talk more with you afterwards. And so we've seen the preparation of the son through the coming of John the Baptist and his preaching. But now we're going to see the inauguration of the son's ministry. Look at verse 9. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. And so as John ministered, Jesus came from his hometown to be baptized. And verse 9 has similar wording to verse 5. But yet there are a few, there's some key differences. One is that unlike the crowd, Jesus had no sin to confess. He didn't need to repent because he is the sinless one. You see, he was baptized to identify with the people he came to save. Another difference is look what happened after Jesus was baptized. Look at verse 10 and 11. It says, as soon as he came up Out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. You see, nothing like this has ever happened again at one's baptism. Only Jesus' baptism. And what happened? God ripped the sky. The spirit descended. And the voice of the father. And all of this alludes to the Old Testament, and it testifies that Jesus is the Christ. You see, God, when he tore the sky like as if someone was tearing a sheet of paper, this alludes to Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1, where God promises to rend the sky in the descent of the Messiah. The Spirit descending like a dove, it alludes to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, where the Holy Spirit will anoint the Messianic King and commission him for service as the promised servant. And then we hear the father speaking. 
He says, this is my beloved, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. You see, the father speaking to the beloved son, he, he affirms what Mark has said in chapter 1, verse 1, that Jesus Christ is the son of God. But then he says, when he says beloved son, what it's getting at, it alludes to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, where the messianic king was enthroned and God said that you are my beloved son. You see in this verse what he says that, that the father loves the son. And this love, it, it didn't just start at the baptism. You see, this love, it, it was going on from eternity past, before the foundation of the world, before anything was created. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there in a harmonious relationship, just loving one another. He says, this is my beloved son. But this is not the only time in Scripture where we see God calls a people his son. You see, God calls Israel his son in Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. But the thing is that Israel was rebellious. And here we see that Jesus is the true son. He fulfills the sonship of Israel. In fact, he is the true Israel. But then he says, with whom I am well pleased. You see, what this alludes to is Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, whereas he was talking, Isaiah was, God was talking about the chosen servant in the book of Isaiah. And what he's saying here is that Jesus is that person. You see, Jesus is the son and the servant, the servant who is commissioned, who will save his people through dying on a cross for sins. And friends, the father has only spoken these words to Jesus. There's no other person he says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. He didn't say that to Abraham, though Abraham was called a friend of God. He didn't say that to any of the patriarchs. He didn't say it to David, who was a man after God's own heart. You see, he, he called Israel his son, but he never said, with whom I am well pleased to them. He didn't say that to the apostles. He didn't say it to the prophets. He didn't say it to anyone else but the Lord Jesus Christ. And what this gets at is the uniqueness of Jesus, the sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that he is the son of God. But then also, at, his, at this baptism, we see the presence of the triune God. The father speaks from heaven. The son is baptized and the spirit descends on him. And what is happening here is the inauguration of the son's public ministry. You see, like a presidential inauguration, which is a ceremony that marks the commencement of the president's new term. Well, Jesus' baptism is the inauguration of his public ministry. It is a declaration that he is the promised one. He is the one the Old Testament anticipated. And, that he, and not only that, but... This is who is Jesus. He is the son. He is the king. He is the suffering servant. And his ministry was inaugurated at his baptism, but it will go all the way to the cross and the empty tomb. He will rescue his people. And so we've seen the inauguration of the son's ministry. And now let's look at the temptation of the son. Look at verses 12 and 13. Immediately, the spirit drove him into the wilderness. 
He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. You see, when Jesus is declared to be the beloved son, what happens afterwards is is different than what many people would expect. You see, there was no procession into Jerusalem saying, Hail the King of the Jews, the one who you waited is here. Rather, the Lord Jesus is thrusted into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit that he may be tempted by Satan. You see, he was in the wilderness for 40 days, which was symbolic to Israel's wandering in the wilderness. You see, if he is the Savior, if he is the suffering servant, he's going to come and save his people from sin, then he must experience temptation. He must go through what Adam and Israel experienced, and he must succeed where they failed. You see, as he is in the wilderness, he is tempted by Satan, the adversary, that ancient servant, serpent, the very same Satan who tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. You see, in Genesis 3, Adam was tempted in the Garden of Eden, and he succumbed to Satan's temptations by eating fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Well, in the wilderness, Jesus being the second Adam, he too is tempted by Satan. But rather than succumbing to temptation, he overcame it. He resisted and faithfully obeyed the Father. You see, Jesus obeyed where Adam rebelled. You see, Adam failed and brought the curse of sin into the world. Well, Jesus, being the second Adam, succeeded, and he reverses the curse, bringing redemption into the world. You see, sin entered into the world through Adam. It is imputed or credited to us as we are born in him, and in Adam all die. Well, the Lord Jesus, being the second Adam, he obeyed and died for our sins. And when we, and he resurrected from the grave, and when we trust in him, his righteousness is imputed to us by faith to where we are justified. You see, in Adam all die, but in Adam, in Christ, all will be made alive. But also, not only is Jesus the second Adam, but he is the true Israel. He obeyed where Israel rebelled. You see, Israel was called God's son. And then after being delivered, they were in the wilderness and their faithfulness was tested by God. Well, Jesus, he too was proclaimed to be the son of God at his baptism. His faithfulness is tested in the wilderness. But he did not grumble and he did not sin against God. Rather, he faithfully obeyed and demonstrated his faithfulness, being the true Israel, the true son. And friends, Jesus' temptation, it was real, and he resisted. You see, the other accounts in Matthew and Mark, it conveys how he resisted temptation. He resisted by quoting the word. And we, too, are going to experience temptation. You see, none of us are exempted from it. But friends, as Jesus is our model, as he resisted temptation with the word, we can follow him in that. And because he was tempted in every way and yet without sin, he is qualified to serve as a faithful and sympathetic high priest to where he is able to help those who are being tempted. And when we are tempted, what do we do? Friends, what do you do when you are tempted? 
Do you give in? Or do you resist? Do you draw near to the Lord Jesus for help? Do you draw near to his people and seek him in his word? Because the Lord Jesus, he offers help for his people. We who are in Christ, we can resist temptation now. We don't have to succumb to it. And we can overcome because our Savior overcame. So friends, may we look to him and resist. Look at verse 13. The end of verse 13, it says that he was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. You see, this is a glimpse of paradise being restored as Jesus being at peace with the wild animals. You see, this victory over Satan in the wilderness is a foreshadow of what we will see throughout the Gospel of Mark. You see, throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus, he casts out demons and he binds the evil one. And his ultimate victory over Satan was displayed at the cross where he died for sins and resurrected from the grave. You see, Hebrews, it would summarize it in in this way. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. It says, now since the children have flesh and blood, and yeah, it says, now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. You see, at the cross, Christ defeated Satan, sin, and death, and he resurrected from the grave. And he offers salvation in all who trust in him. We do not have to fear judgment after death. But in him, we know that, as what Trip Lee would say, death is a doorway to take us to our faithful lover. And it's because Jesus has overcome, because Jesus resurrected from the grave. So we can hope in him. Friends, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the one who came to save his people. This is the Savior of the world. He is the one whom we are to cling to. He is the one whom we are to hold fast to and walk by faith because salvation is only found in him. And he is the one who will return and make all things new. So may we look to him day by day, walking by faith, beholding the Son of God all the way until that day where our faith will become sight and we will worship him for all of eternity. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are faithful to fulfilling your promises. God, and that you sent your Son to deliver us to save us from your judgment, from the wrath that we rightfully deserve. Father, we praise you for the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus. His obedience where Adam and Israel rebelled and failed. Lord, may we hold fast to him. May we hold firm to the truth of his identity that he is the son and that he is the Christ. And Lord, may we long for his imminent return. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.